All right, let's go ahead and open up our Bibles this morning to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And I want to draw your attention this morning to verses 16 through 18. Uh, I've entitled this this sermon, Giving Thanks. It's it's always appropriate uh, because the Lord always, as we go through the scriptures, it has always amazed me that you always find yourself right where you need to be. So uh, this is where we're at this morning. And uh, if you remember... Just to kind of set it up for you, Paul had encountered trouble in Philippi when they were traveling and was basically thrown out of the town. He was, you know, uh, beaten and and severely and and, uh, had to flee. Then he decided they were going to go to Thessalonica. And so uh, for three Sabbath days, once he got there, uh, we're told in the scriptures that he reasoned with them from the scriptures, proving that Jesus Christ was indeed the Messiah. And uh, because of that, many people, many of the Jews, that is, believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, but some didn't. The Jews that did not believe, um, of course, you know, uh, created a revolt, which is so common when Paul preached. He would go into the synagogues, as many of you know, and when Paul preached the gospel, which was always so clear and concise, many people would believe. Some would believe, some wouldn't, but of those who wouldn't uh, usually revolt. So I've always said that when Paul preached, what happens is either revival or revolt, and uh, most of the time, both. And this was certainly the case of that. Thus, you know, Paul... uh, when he left there, you know, once again, he had to flee, which is how he winds up, winds up in Berea. So when he gets to Berea, he begins to, once again, go to the synagogue. He preaches the gospel. And this scenario kind of duplicates itself. Many people there also believed. And, uh, but there were certain Jews which had followed him. The ones that didn't believe had blazed a trail right behind him as he got down there and followed him to Berea and then stirred up a big ruckus. And, and created a revolt there in the town of Berea. So Paul winds up fleeing there also. So, it, it, you know, the funny part about that when you think about it was uh, when Paul would have to move from town to town, really, the, you know, the devil's trying to stop him, and all it's really doing is fanning the flames of evangelism. And he just winds up reaching more and more people. But he, but he flees to Athens, and that when he gets to Athens, of course, he winds up meeting up with Timothy and Silas. So in the process of that course of time, you know, Paul had been praying, uh, you know, for this budding church that he had left back in Thessalonica. And I want you to, for those of you who are study notes takers, you know, always remember that the church in Thessalonica was a very, very young church. Paul had only been there three weeks, you know, three weeks, and, and he left a church there. Uh, so by this time, you know, this church is uh, very young. I mean, you know, at most maybe a few months, uh, maybe not even that old in the Lord. And so when as we continue through this epistle, it's essential that you remind yourself of that, you know, uh, on a regular basis as you're reading that these Christians were, were really embryos as far in the Lord as far as maturity was concerned. So... Paul sent Timothy back to check on these these young people. You know, he wanted to see how the brethren were faring. So he sends Timothy back there from Athens and says, go check on him, to, you know, to bring him word on how the Lord was moving among them. So 
Paul and Silas uh, continued on their way down to uh, Corinth. And, and while they were there, you know, after they got there, you know, Timothy returned from Thessalonica. And, of course, he comes and he's got this great report that how the Lord was moving amongst them and how they were just growing in their relationship with Christ. And it was just this blessed, glorious, uh, you know, report that he gets back from Thessalonica of, the, of this tiny but but yet growing church there that he left, which is just amazing when you think about it. Uh, I can't even imagine that, being there for three weeks, you know, and, and all of a sudden. But that's what the Holy Spirit was doing. This is this is why when, you know, there's an interesting passage in the Bible that says, except the Lord build the house, those that labor do it in vain. So often, uh, you know, and, and there's... Uh, do not misunderstand what, I, what I'm saying. I realize that sometimes it takes years. And I realize that. I, I, I know that laboring in the Lord, especially when you're church planning, is tough stuff. But I have to admit, when I see, when I read Thessalonians, I'm reminded that when God does it, <laughs> it seems effortless. You, you see what I mean? It seems effortless because it is. So, man, Paul was there three weeks. This church springs up. You know, and, and after as he's traveling, as he and as he's suffering persecution, he's worrying about them. You know, he's concerned about it. He wants to hear. Timothy goes back, and of course, he brings this great uh, report back that, oh wow, man, the Lord's moving, the Spirit's moving, these guys are growing in Christ. So it's a really, really uh, fantastic thing. However, when Timothy comes back, of course, with this report, there were certain misunderstandings which had cropped up uh, within this young church. So Paul puts his hand to the pen, if you will, and then he sends this particular epistle, uh, the one that we're reading this morning, this First Thessalonians, he sends it back to this group of young Christians. Uh, he laid the groundwork um, that I believe should be a, a model, really, for how discipleship of young Christians should be. Just as the book of Acts, when you read the book of Acts, you we, we see the book of Acts, almost every pastor worth his salt or Bible teacher uh, looks at the book of Acts as a model uh, for the church, as how the church ought to really be operating. That's, that's the way we see it. Well, I think Thessalonians uh, is a great example of how discipleship ought to be done. You know, um, Paul was concerned with doctrine right from the beginning. He wanted to make sure that they were grounded. So as we get, you know, to chapter four, we're going to see where Paul began to encourage the brethren, you know, telling them that he didn't want them to be ignorant or sorrowful uh, concerning those who had died in Christ as others which had no hope, which is what he said. Evidently, these young Christians, uh, because of just ignorance, they just didn't know, okay, had come to this erroneous conclusion that somehow when a person who was a believer died, that that was it. You know, that that, that was it. it. You know, you just took a dirt nap and that was over. I mean, uh, so they, because of their being youthful, and of course in the Lord, they just didn't know. They really had come to this crazy mindset that the Christian life our faith in Christ is only for the here and now. And I have to be honest with you, when you look around and you see the way some professing Christians live, you would think that that is what it is, that it just seems to be for the here and now, because many of them are, 
have the mindset of eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you may die, not realizing that really it is the coming of Christ that we are to be looking forward to. And this is really what Paul was trying to get these young Christians. He was reminding them of this very solid doctrinal fact. In 1 Corinthians, Paul addressed the very issue that I just mentioned when he said that if in this life only we have hope in Christ, well, we're all men most miserable. If this is it, my friends, if this is it, then why be a Christian? It makes no sense if this is it. That would be crazy. Well, but it's not that. That's not what it is. And Paul's reassuring him, you know, what good is the gospel if all it affects is the here and now? So the Thessalonians, because they were so young in Christ, were simply ignorant uh, about what happens to a Christian when he dies. You know, because of, because of the fact that they just didn't know, uh, they were sorrowing. They were sorrowing. They were genuinely, you know, mourning. Uh, They were discouraged, as though there was no hope. Recently, I was talking, uh, back in February this year, of course, I had to preach my own mother's funeral. And on the day of the funeral, uh, you know, of course, you know, at the viewings, there's always people there that you don't really know, uh, but my mother knew. And, but on the day of the funeral, the the place was full. And uh, I've done more funerals in the ministry in the close to 40 years that I've been in the ministry. I've done more funerals than I could count. I I really, I just, I I wouldn't be able to put them, I just can't remember them all. But one observation that I've always made, and and I can share this with you, is that there's always two types of people at a funeral, which is why I basically preach the same funeral at every, at every funeral. I preach the same sermon. And that is, is that there's people there who have hope and those who have no hope. And the observation that I've made is that those who have no hope cry the hardest. Why? Because this is it. You see, when they see death, they see finality, finite, over, finished, done, nothing beyond. Paul said, if, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are all men most miserable. Buddy, if this is it, my friend. Well, yeah, I can see why people would have no hope. But Paul didn't want these Thessalonians who were young Christians. He said, I don't want you to be ignorant or to be sorrowful as others which have no hope. And he was talking about those who had died in Christ. The Bible's very clear. You know, Paul would later write to be separate from the body is to be present with the Lord. You know, so to a Christian, death is a simply moving from one status to another. It's like walking through a door. And it's a blessed reunion for the, for the Christian. And Paul was just reminding these guys of this. You know, Paul told them that the gospel actually teaches that all those who have died in Christ will be raised from the dead. The resurrection, right? just as Jesus was raised from the dead, we too will be resurrected at that time uh, when Jesus comes to receive his church. You know, he's, he's coming again is what Paul was telling them. And when he comes again, those who have died in Christ will rise first, he says. Then 
those of us who are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord will be caught up. You know, in, in the Greek, that's a, that's a it's snatched away violently. In the Latin Vulgate, the word is raptured. We shall be raptured, you know, in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, as Paul would say. To be with the Lord in the air. And he says, and then so shall we ever be with the Lord. Now, see, that brings hope, my friends. That brings hope. If, if this is it, no hope. Just, oh, yeah, we live a good life and then we die. Yeah, that's, that's, there's no gospel in that. <laughs> Where's the gospel? There's no gospel in that. There's no good news in that. The good news is that Christ has paid the price for all of our sins. Uh, we were separated from God, but in him we are reconciled. And not only are we reconciled in this life that we live now, but we will be with him in the life to come. For eternity, we get to spend in the presence of our God. Oh, my friends, the gospel is extremely hopeful for those who believe. So these young Christians had gotten it in their head, whether it was by somebody telling it to them or just out of sheer ignorance. But Paul is reassuring them that Jesus Christ is coming again and that their loved ones who had died in Christ, they will see again. That's our hope. That's why when I was preaching my mom's funeral, I thought, you know, my mom loved the Lord. My mom, you know, she, she was, you know, she dedicated her writings and everything else to Jesus Christ and her life, you know. Uh, yeah, it's not the end. I, we're going to see her again. We're all going to be together with the Lord one of these days as Christ comes back. And, and the way things are looking, my friends, um, that might not be too long. You know, Christ is coming. You know, Paul ended the chapter uh, there when he said, you know, those of us who alive and remain shall be caught up together to meet the Lord, and thus shall we ever be with the Lord. Then he says there in verse 18 of that same chapter, comfort one another with these words. And I want you to take note of that because that is the comfort of us who are believers in Christ. We believe in the rapture of the church. Now, and, and, you know, there are those who reject this most clear doctrine found here in, in the book of Thessalonians. They reject it. And really, they're doing themselves and those who listen to them a grave disservice. Uh, because if you're not living as an expecting Christian of the soon and imminent return of Jesus Christ, if you think, and some, most of these guys wind up giving into what we would classify as amillennialism or no millennialism and this kingdom theology that, and in their mind, only because they really haven't searched, they haven't really read the whole thing because <laughs> when you read the whole Bible, you really cannot come to this understanding. But many of people do believe that somehow we as Christians are going to tame the world and, and, and conquer the world for Jesus, you see. And, and when all the world is conquered for Christ, then Jesus will come, and then he's going to establish. My friends, if that were the case, then you better become an, uh, you know, a, a, you'd have to be a universalist to believe that. It just isn't going to happen because Christ, there's too many verses in the Bible that says otherwise. Uh, even here, in the passages, you know, in the First Thessalonians, uh, teaches totally against this particular doctrine. It really lends itself to giving people despair because there's a lot of wrath of God. There's a lot of judgment to God. 
that's going to come upon the earth. But the Bible tells us that we are not destined for his wrath. God doesn't pour out his judgment upon his people and upon sinners. He even said that in the very beginning in Genesis to Abraham. You know, this was a question Abraham had when when God had sent the angels to judge Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, his nephew was there. Remember, Lot was there with his family. And Abraham, being the good uncle that he was, he got a little concerned. And he said, Lord, will you judge the righteous with the wicked? And of course, you probably know the story. And God said, no way. And Lot said, well, what if there's only 50 people there? And God said, for the sake of the 50, I wouldn't do it. What if there's 40? And he starts bargaining. The, The implication is God just doesn't do that. But what does he do? Before he judges, he removes, my friends, he removes the believer. He removes the righteous from the place of judgment that's going to come. Thus, we read in Thessalonians that those who are dead in Christ will Christ bring with him at his coming, and then he will rapture the church, snatched away, caught up, you know, into the air, and those of us who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them. And to be with the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Therefore, we comfort one another with these words. We're looking for it. We're expecting it. You know, in the gospel, Jesus said, The devil comes not but for to kill, to steal, and to destroy. He said, I've come that you might have life, and that you might have that life more abundantly. In fact, I'm absolutely convinced that the reason sin is so rampant in the church today is because many, like these young Christians in Thessalonica, are ignorant, not stupid, but ignorant. They just don't know that the coming of Jesus Christ and the judgment of God is imminent. Imminent. If you don't know what that means, it means at hand, my friends. It is at hand. Look around. I mean, my gosh, friends, family, listen to me. I I hesitate to tell you to listen to the news because it's awful depressing anymore. But all you have to do is look at how the world is. Be a student of prophecy, my friends. Don't just be a student of the word. If you're going to be a student of the word, you have to be a student of prophecy. And when you see the prophecies, we're watching many of them actually unfold before our very eyes. Believe me, the coming of Jesus Christ, the rapture of the church is at hand. It's close. Uh, When is it going to be? Well, we don't know. We're going to occupy till he comes, and we're going to prep like we have a 100 years. But trust me, my friends, we're going to live like it's going to be today because it very well could be. There's coming a day of reckoning is what I want you to see. And and, uh, my friends, in some, you know, when that day happens, it will be a glorious, joyful experience on the day of judgment for those who have waited patiently expecting the return of Christ, you know, who waited for him. Uh, That'll be a glorious reunion for us. But for many people who have simply been playing church, you know who you are. Some of you sit in church every Sunday, maybe every Wednesday. Maybe you're there every time the door is open. But your life is a life of sin. You're living a life that is total contradiction as to what you say you believe. For those people, That coming of Christ, the rapture of the church is going to happen, as Paul says in verse 2. You know, it's going to happen like a thief in the night. They'll be caught unaware. 
and on the wrong side of the judgment bar, unfortunately. But Paul didn't want that for these young Christians, and and we don't want that for you if you're listening to this broadcast. Don't want you to get caught unaware. Don't want you to be, you know, stuck here and, and caught not being found in Christ. You know, he wanted them, these Christians, to be established firmly uh, in the doctrine of the election. God has chosen you. He even preached it there in chapter 1. He wanted them to walk worthy of God. You know, if you're part of the elect, then you should walk worthy of the vocation, Paul says there in chapter 2. He wanted them to understand that tribulation and suffering are a part of the Christian experience. You know, there there in chapter 3, he spoke of that and, and how they should live a life of sanctification and how that we should abstain from sexual immorality, that we should know how to possess our earthly vessels, this body in which we live, by honoring God, by the way that we live, and not allowing and not wallowing in sin like the world does. You know, Paul went on to say that we should live expecting the soon return of Jesus Christ. This is what we are called to do. In his first epistle, the apostle John said, And every man that hath this blessed hope purifieth himself even as he is pure. That is, because we are in Christ, because we are risen with the Lord, chosen, beloved, and elected. We want to live a life that is exemplary of the things that we say we believe. You know, so often within the body of Christ, we become more concerned with right doing than we do with right believing. It's kind of like putting the cart before the horse. The problem is, is that when you teach that way, when you just simply point out that people shouldn't be drunkards and shouldn't be living in sin together and wallowing in sexual immorality, those type of things, and you don't tell them how to not do it. <laughs> yeah, that is a lesson in futility. And what it produces is nothing more than either people who are pharisaical, you know, self-righteous, uh, or, they're, or they're just hypocritical. Uh, and they're living a life that's phony. They're, you know, to, in the church, of course, they put on that church face, I'm good, I, I, I don't smoke, I don't chew, and I don't go with girls. They, they look that way, but in reality, their life is quite something different. Listen, I've always said, and I believe this with my whole heart, friends, whatever you are when you're all by yourself, when it's just you and the Lord and nobody else is around, you better believe that's who you really are. And you better believe that God knows who you really are, you see? But when we are in Christ, when we are genuinely born again, when we are genuinely filled and motivated and empowered by the Holy Spirit, well, then it's no longer I that doeth it. Then it is the work of God. It is God that worketh in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. So right believing, is my point, always produces right doing. To simply tell somebody to do something right, and, and, and if they do that, but yet it's not motivated genuinely from their heart, they're simply going to find an opportunity to fall back into those things when nobody's looking. But to those of us who are genuinely in Christ, and we're no longer worried about whether, uh, you know, uh, 
sin's just not it's not even it's not even in our thought pattern. Why? Because our desire is to serve the Lord. We're not even worried about those things. So those of us who have this blessed hope, John said, that the, the hope of Jesus' return, you know, purifies themselves, even as he is pure. So the question is, is, you know, the Bible's, you know, there in Thessalonians, Paul says that, you know, the church is going to be caught up. My question to you, friend, is how do you want to be caught? You know, when Jesus catches up the church, how do you want to be caught? You want to be caught walking in direct disobedience to the commandments of the Lord? Or do you want to be caught during doing the work of the Lord and to be found in him so doing? I pray that it's the latter. You know, in chapter 5, Paul said that the Thessalonians knew perfectly. I think that's interesting. He knew They knew perfectly that the day of the Lord's return would come as a thief in the night. Well, that's exactly what's going to happen. You know, if you knew, remember in the gospel, if you knew when the thief would come, you know, you would have stayed awake, you know, but we don't know when Christ is coming. We don't know when our Lord is going to return. Thus, we want to occupy our hands in the things of the Lord. We want to live a life that is exemplary, that we might help to lead others to Jesus Christ. You know, during this time of the Gentiles, as the Bible says, because the coming of Christ is soon. It's imminent. We look around, we're going, wow, the coming of Christ has got to be, the rapture of the church is at hand. So we want to be so doing when Christ comes. That's how we want to be caught and caught up at the same time. Just because the coming of of the Lord will be suddenly and unannounced, uh, because we are, you know, we're not in darkness, Paul said, that, that we shouldn't be overtaken like a thief in the night. Because of that, you know, we are children of light. And the children of the day, as he said there in verse 5, we are to be watching and to be sober in the things of the Lord. Now, in our text today, Paul said, Rejoice evermore. Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. So, The conclusion of the exhortation is that if we are living in Christ, if we are genuinely part of the elect of God, chosen and beloved, then in spite of the suffering which many of us experience, the trials and the tribulations that go along with the Christian life, because we have the blessed hope of Jesus' imminent return, we're not going to let life get us down. We're not going to be, you know, pooch-lipped and, and thinking about, you know, everything that's, uh, you know, poor me. It's, that's not us. You know, we're not going to be walking in despair because we seek relief, you know, in Christ, not in a bottle. We seek relief in Jesus, not in sexual immorality or anything that's contrary to sound doctrine. Quite the contrary, my friends, because we are aware that the rapture of the church, the snatching away, the catching up of the body of Christ is imminent. Because we see that day approaching as a collective, as the congregation of the Most High, in spite of the world's situation, we want to gather the more often together that we might encourage one another and pray for one another and to remind one another not to give up the race, to persevere, 
to press on, to move, to keep running. You know, it's eternity that's in the balance, my friends, which is an eternity with the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Because of all these things, we can rejoice evermore. And while we are rejoicing, we will pray without ceasing. You know, so often people don't understand when you talk about praying without ceasing. They think that you got to be on your knees all the time. It's just not true. You know, the fact is we are to be in constant communication with Christ at all times. And you can do that driving down the road. You know, that is having that constant mindset of, of talking with the Lord. You know, so often people say, well, I pray and I never hear anything. That's because you're not, you know, you're probably, all you're doing is just asking. That's not communication. You know, the, we, we talk to the Lord. We, we speak to him on a constant basis uh, in all of our doings and our movings and our laying downs and our rising up. You know, he's the first thing on our mind in the morning. He's the last thing on our mind when we put our head on the pillow. And he's on our mind constantly during the daytime. And so then we patiently wait upon him. And that's communicating with the Lord, simply uh, using that, you know, being able to come to him anytime and any place, coming boldly, as the Bible tells us, unto the throne of grace. And if we're rejoicing and praying in everything, we will give thanks. And this, this chapter, this verse that we're reading today is so appropriate. You know, we're coming up on this holiday of Thanksgiving. So often many people call it Turkey Day and because that's all they see it as. And uh, that's them, but not I. Uh, man, this is going to be a great time of just uh, really focusing on what Jesus Christ has done. Although I have to admit, in my own life, it's pretty much like that every day. <laughs> I can't get away from it, and I wouldn't want to because I just, I love it. You know, we we get up in the morning, and I'm very fortunate. I have a wife that we get to sit and talk to the, the things of the Lord, and then I get to teach it. And, and uh, you know, so, but so often, you know, we, we can get caught up with the things of life, and we forget how, how blessed we really are uh, in conjunction. When you consider those around you, uh, my friends, listen to me. Uh, we don't measure blessing in stuff, okay? And I'm never talking about that. Listen, God gives and God takes away. Stuff comes and goes. Uh, but man, having the expectation of the coming of Christ and having a genuine relationship with him is such a blessing. And does he take care of me with stuff? Well, sure he does. The Bible says, I've never seen the righteous forsaken, nor his seed begging bread. You know, God doesn't do that. He takes care of us. He takes care of the sparrows. He'll definitely take care of you. Um, I heard a minister one time uh, talking about being thankful in everything, as our scripture says. I heard this minister say one time that he could be thankful in all things, but that he refused to give thanks for all things. Now, while I understood uh, what he meant, uh, he couldn't have been more wrong, to be honest with you. Thankfulness is something that God has called us to uh, in and for all things. Um, boy, a, a simple reading of Ephesians uh, 5.20 uh, should have straightened it out for him, you know, because we're told by Paul, uh, of course, the Holy Spirit speaking through him says, giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So not only are we to give thanks in all things, but for all things. 
And I can do that because I understand that God is sovereign. Do you realize, my friend, that if you are a person in Christ, if you are in, if you are a genuine born-again believer, and you are, you have a full grasp on the sovereignty of God, you're one of the only ones that can give thanks in and for all things. Oh, well, Doug, you don't understand. You know, I, I, you know, I, I've had this bout. My health is ruined, and you know, are you in Christ? Yeah. Do you believe in Jesus Christ? Yeah. Is God sovereign? Yeah. Then, my friend, you're right where God wants you to be. Now, you might not physically think that you're right where you want to be, but listen to me, my friends. God is working something out in your life and in my life through those things which we suffered. The Bible even tells us that Jesus himself learned obedience through the things which he what? Suffered. God had solemnly decreed in his own will that Christ would suffer for the sins of those whom he had called. Now, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, you know the story. He went there and prayed with his disciples. And he even asked the Lord, look, if there's some other way, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. I understand his humanity saying that. But what he said next showed you what his attitude was. But nevertheless, not my will, he said, but thy will be done. See, that's, that's our cry as a Christian. Yo, do we love suffering? No. Who, who would love that? You'd have to be a masochist to love suffering. Nobody wants those things to come upon their life. But let me tell you, for those people who I have seen in the years of my ministry who have suffered greatly, and I know several, and there's several in our church right now, but I look at the work that the Holy Spirit is doing in their life. You know, you, we got people in our church who are prayer warriors who have suffered greatly in a year or so. And yet, I'll guarantee you that if you ask them, their prayer life, even though it was phenomenal before, is even better now in the midst of that tribulation. I would guarantee it. Though I've never asked them, I, I don't have to ask them. I know because I know them. Because that is the earmark of a person who is genuinely born again, my friends. Oh, do we love suffering? Well, no, we don't love suffering. But we understand suffering. And we understand that sometimes God decrees us to go through things that we ourselves would not choose. I wouldn't choose to go through certain things that I have been through that are not pleasant. But yet I have learned from them. And yet I have learned and then learned how to minister to those who are going through them also. And so I become a, a conduit of comfort, if you will, because of the Holy Spirit to those who are going through the same thing. Because I'm one of his, all things that happen to me, all things that come upon me are not happenstance, my friends. They're not coincidences that occur because of some cosmic roll of the dice. We're told in the book of Psalms that the steps of a good man, that is a person who is called of God, chosen of the Lord, elected, the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. Because our lives are ordered, God has decreed all things to be so. And he has given to us great hope that we will spend eternity with him. And that we should live in a life of expectation of that, waiting for the redemption of our bodies even, 
which is the resurrection you know, to come. Paul said, comfort one another with these words. You know, rejoice evermore, he said. Pray without ceasing. In everything, give thanks. Not just in everything, but for everything. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Wow. Praise the Lord, my friends. You know, this Thanksgiving, I realize that there's people listening who probably have are not going to be able to spend it with their family or and that's that's heart wrenching, I gotta be honest with you. There's people that are going to be uh, you know, suffering uh, during this time. Uh, but you know what? Regardless of the circumstance, we will rejoice. We will not cease to pray and to give thanks unto the Lord. I pray that you're going to be able to uh, celebrate this uh, coming uh, Thursday with, uh, with your friends and family. But if not, my friends, listen to me. Remember, Jesus Christ is with you, and he is for you, and he has suffered with you. And he has done all things for you. And because he has done all things for you, you can rejoice in that. You can pray without ceasing and, and certainly be thankful. Uh, but let me, let me say this before we wind up going to communion. For those of you listening uh, by radio and, and, or even on the web, listen, where do you stand with Christ? You know, all the things that I've talked about this morning in this sermon have been for the believer. You know, especially talking about the rapture of the church, you know, the catching away. Jesus' return is imminent, my friends. If you think that this world is simply going crazy because of some happenstance, I got news for you. The Lord predicted this centuries ago and warned us. Why? Because he is long-suffering, not willing that any of his called should be, you know, wasted, but that all would come to repentance. You know, listen, God has given you a chance. I know some people out there listening to me right now who God has given a second chance to, and a third, and a fourth. Listen, my friend, don't waste that. Because there's going to come a time when after the church is gone, and and, and I'll tell you, I've always said this, and I believe it to be true. Those of us who are in Christ are looking forward to the rapture, but even if that doesn't happen in my lifetime, we're all going to have a personal appearance before the judgment seat of Christ. And when that happens, he's either going to be your savior or he's going to be your judge. Do you realize, my friend, maybe you don't, that God himself saves you from himself to himself? What do you mean, Doug? Well, see, God is going to judge the world. He's going to pour his wrath out upon this God-rejecting world. It tells us that in the book of Revelation. Going to pour it out without mixture, it says. Undiluted. He wants to keep you from that. That's how amazing our God is. He doesn't wish that. He's not willing that that would happen to his elect. So God has, in his great mercy, allowed his Son, and decreed his son to be the savior of those whom he has given. Listen, he will save you from his own wrath and 
take you unto himself for eternity. That is an amazing thing. Therein lies the gospel. Listen, you're a sinner, my friend. You were born into this world a wretch, deserving of eternal damnation. All of us were. That's what it tells us in Romans 3. There's none righteous, no, not one. We have all gone astray. We are all like sheep without a shepherd. We, we, there's none worthy. There's none. We're all worthless without Christ. But God has given you a way of redemption. God has given you a way to be reconciled to him and to spend eternity with him. Not in hell, my friend, which was built for the devil and his angels, but to spend it with him, which is where God would have you to be. So how's your life this morning? You live in an expectation? You know, are you looking forward to the coming of Christ, or have you never given your life to the Lord? My friend, if God is tapping on your shoulder, listen, this Thursday's coming up. It's a thank day of Thanksgiving. If you've never given your life to Christ, if you're listening to this broadcast right now, listen to me. Make it a great Thanksgiving. Make it a Thanksgiving for your salvation, for, for just forgiveness of your sins. Listen, the Bible says repent and believe the gospel. Turn from your sins. Turn to God. Ask for forgiveness and simply receive the gift of salvation and eternal life through Jesus Christ. It really is just that simple. I pray that you do that this morning. And to those of you, maybe some of you have been playing games with God. Maybe you've been, you know, going to church and maybe you've never ever made a confession of faith. Maybe you're just playing games. My friend, game time is over. You're running out of time. Listen, the Bible says today is the appointed time. Today is the day of salvation. I'm going to say a prayer, and then we're going to be going to communion. But for those of you who have never received Christ, if you've never, you know, if you've never asked God, I'm going to pray a small prayer. I want you to pray with me, if you will. And it's, it's so simple. It doesn't have to be complicated, my friends. But just say this simple prayer, Lord, God, Father, I realize that you know my own conscience bears witness against me, Lord, Father. I'm a sinner, and I've sinned against you only. Lord, I repent. I, I, I ask for your forgiveness. And Lord, I pray that you would apply what Jesus has done, his blood and his, his life and his works to my life, Lord, Father, and I receive that, and I, and, I, and I thank you for your forgiveness, and I just ask you to be my Lord and my Savior, Father, and I ask you that even now in Jesus' name. Amen.